0: Marit's currently on sabbatical leave and visiting the University of I hope everyone pronounces right, Tampere, in Finland, so yeah. where she's working on a book manuscript on subject formation and political activism in urban Trinidad. And it's uh, research from this project that we're going to hear about tonight on um, political socialities, affect, and everyday activism in Hell Yard, Trinidad. So welcome, Barrett. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for your lovely introduction. And listening to your description of my research interests sounds a bit morbid, (laughs) (laughs) Death. and uh, today I get to talk about love, so there's that (laughs) Are you seeing the image? Should we take the image? I can put our individual lights so you can still see. I used to glance at the huts on the side of the highway on my way to Port of Spain from St. Augustine in Trinidad, where I've lived and worked for the past 10 years. Sometimes I'd see kids or young men <coughs> in the narrow streets, and sometimes guys with old T-shirts or bandanas tied over their faces and heads would take a chance to dash over the six-lane highway to the smelly landfill on a bus, directly opposite to the Beatam. They would salvage food and metal, household items. No one I knew in Trinidad would actually venture to the area. And uh, like most Trinidadians, all I knew about the Beatam was based on frequent media reports on gangs, crime, the occasional protests that folks from the Beatam staged on the highway, blocking it with tires or other objects. The reportage in the media was frequently hostile, and the online commentary and the radio talk, show, talk shows invariably so. People from the beaten were likened to rats, cockroaches, um, pests that should be exterminated. They were told, said to be lazy, crime prone. Their protests were described as chaotic and meaningless. So much of the discourse seemed to have raided the closet of colonial racism. People made use of long-standing stereotypes that served to dehumanize the black and Indian laboring population in the plantation society. And now help to solidify the subhumanity of the urban poor. Much like my previous work with religious communities, I felt increasingly drawn to the beaten. When I began my fieldwork there in 2014, Uh, my intention was to learn to understand how people in the neighborhood saw their world and their futures, and what kind of civic engagement, if any, was taking place. In line with Arthur Kleinman's work on structural violence experienced by the urban poor, this community of approximately 4,000 people, mainly of African descent, suffered from high rates of disease and death, unemployment, homelessness, Lack of education, powerlessness. Statistics show that there are more women, more young and teenage mothers, larger families, lower incomes, lower education levels in this neighborhood than uh, in in Trinidad (coughs) more generally. Hell Yard, the labyrinthine squatter section at the eastern end of the neighborhood, uh, was the home of Rasta City, the major gang. Um, in Trinidad involved in drug trade and related turf war against the other main gang, Muslims. Over 500 people are murdered in these wars uh, in Trinidad annually, our murder rate being higher than, say, Brazil or Mexico. Heliard was where I uh, did most of my fieldwork and I'm now completing a book manuscript on subjectivity and uh, civic engagement in the beaten. And this paper is a short version of one of the chapters. It soon became clear that representational politics was rather irrelevant in the neighborhood. Trinidad and Tobago inherited the Westminster system from the colonial masters. Two parties draw on racialized electorates where people identifying with Indian origins would normally vote for UNC, the United National Congress, and uh, those of African origin support the People's National Movement. There are no real ideological differences between these parties, and people across the society are generally disillusioned with party politics. When talking about the future or change, people in the Vietnam very rarely brought up voting, or parties, or representative politics in general but class-based forms of solidarity were equally distant from political life. The traditional left, so potent in the Caribbean in the 1970s and early 80s, has become marginal in the political landscape of Trinidad since the structural adjustment programs of the mid-1980s. And its remnants, like trade unions, were absent from the everyday life and talk in the beaten. In spite of relentless police violence, and extrajudicial killings, the police shoot up to 40 young black men in Trinidad every year with little consequence, Uh, there was nothing resembling Black Lives Matter. The apparent absence of spontaneous bottom-up movements uh, (coughs) in the Vietnam was in contrast with what I'd read about, and I quote, the proactive, empowered citizenship of the urban working classes in Brazilian cities where neighborhood associations file petitions and demand clean drinking water or street lights. Or what Obiga Gray is writing about Jamaica, saying that um, the urban poor there have a lively consciousness of social inequality and a potent sense of their capacity to challenge the state. In the Beaton, this didn't seem to be the case. Collective exchanges and efforts toward improving the lives of the people there seemed to take place mainly within non-governmental organizations. There was something called the Citizen Security Programme, a government-sponsored programme, uh, encouraging people in the neighbourhood to start their own small NGOs uh, as an avenue towards empowering them to find solutions to the social problems affecting their lives. While the NGO regime and its thrust to teach the urban poor how to be polit- political in an unthreatening and socially palatable way uh, was an important presence in the beatum. My prolonged participant observation led me to look beyond the NGOs and think about activism and civic engagement in different ways. So, what does political life look like when it's not read in the context of collectives? like parties, or unions, or movements, or associations. What is activism or an activist without an identifiable movement or a collective? Trying to make sense of these questions, I changed the focus of analysis from preconceived groups to everyday acts and gestures, discussions aimed at community building, and eventually, social justice. And I consider these micro-level Practices and intentions as political. And I use terms like activism and civic engagement in my discussion of this kind of political orientation and work. The fact that activism in the Beatum happened in the absence of parties and movements did not mean that the scope of political work was limited to the individual or to private spaces. Um, The closer ethnographic Look into the lives of community activists, revealed that their politics took shape within all kinds of relations. I took part in meetings and rituals, events, but the main sites of my fieldwork were two very informal women's groups uh, that did not have informal organizational status. They allowed me to follow the process of building relationships and building trust. And discussions, including political discussions, that were not guided or facilitated by an NGO facilitator. <laughs> so I was able to learn about these activists' lives and their religious ideas and experiences, their livelihoods. They thought about and worked toward their future and their objectives within sets of malleable and varied social relations to family and friends. Neighbours, politicians, gang leaders, strong men, uh, also saints, deities, spirits. Instead of a collective us, based on a common identity or a common cause, such as a movement or a neighbourhood association, people acted politically in matrices of relations, perhaps best called socialities. So this is the strange term in my title, that I'm now going to kind of open here. A notion developed in anthropology by Marilyn Strathern and Tim Ingold, Cynthia Howell, others, sociality connotes a relational process rather than a fixed system of relationships. It's fluid, but it also includes fleeting as well as more stable and more lasting uh, relations. And a sociality does not imply unity or a sense of being a group. So people within a sociality do not necessarily know each other, because they are. it's sort of centred on individuals, and uh, you can look at socialities from an individual's perspective. Such relations can be transformative and constitutive, in that people become in relation to others. So people theorising with this concept of sociality don't think of individuals as autonomous, Uh, entities, who then relate to other autonomous entities. People learn and develop and discover new talents and skills in relation to others, and that's part of the constitutive uh, side of sociality. So the socialities I looked at in the Beatum were not formed for political purposes. And the people and spirits within them did not necessarily share the same political views. And I'm not proposing this as a model for political action. I'm just very simply looking at the important relations in my key interlocutors' lives in the Beaten. So, by doing this, I'm kind of shifting the lens from more formally organized political collectives toward rather amorphous Connections that informed activism in the beaton, And they were therefore thinking of politics widely as everyday acts and gestures in the sense of expressions of an attitude or a meaning. So there's this very sort of micro-level everyday work happening beyond the NGOs and the more formal politics. Because emotions were integral to the socialities within which activists operated. My other related theoretical concern here uh, is with affect as a political resource. Investigating relations between differently situated humans and spirits, I pay attention to affect experienced and expressed within such relations, and I query the potential transformations that emerge within these affective socialities. Emotions have not attracted much of scholarly interest in in studies of Caribbean social and political movements. Centuries of colonial violence and uh, exploitation in the region have engendered various kinds of resistance and revolutions, which have quite rightly been the focus of many historical and anthropological studies. But love has rarely been considered in the realm of political. As part of the ideology of race, Colonial accounts of Africans reduced affect to licentious hypersexuality and social scientific studies of relationships in the Caribbean have often focused on problems and pathologies like um, single parenting or male marginality or illegitimacy and so on. In Trinidadian media and public discourse uh, references to affect in the lives of the urban poor tend to focus on grief and anger. So we see reports on their sort of angry, chaotic protests. And then we see grieving mothers, of uh, whose sons have died. So these sorts of representations carry the same message that the poor Malagasy people that uh, another anthropologist Jennifer Cole writes about, um, that they did not deserve love attention or respect. Perhaps it's this bracketing of emotions in, in social scientific literature, but also in the Trinidadian media, that prompts me to that direction, um, as if to complement accounts of struggles and heroics and uh, triumphs by exploring love and solidarity and caring and friendship and thus maybe striving for a more complex and more fully human representation. <coughs> and a little caveat here. My approach to affect, info, as, uh, because it's informed by an ethnographic sensibility, um, is directed towards emotions that are always already cultural and socially experienced. So I, I'm not interested in, a, or I'm not working with a more sort of psychological, individual-centred approach to emotions. And for the rest of this paper, I'll look at sociality uh, and affect in relation to subject constitution and community building in the beaten. <coughs> this is one of the groups I um, did most of my work with, and uh, I'll talk about them in a while. On a November afternoon, Jeanette came to meet me in front of her two-story house in Hellyard, on a narrow unpaved pathway. Her daughter and two grandchildren lived downstairs and she had two rooms and an open kitchen upstairs. The floors and the walls were bare concrete. There was no ceiling under the galvanized roof. No furniture. The kitchen sink was leaning against the wall yet to be installed. In stark contrast with the gray, rough surfaces of the rest of the apartment stood a sleeping alcove source of pride for Jeanette. She had tiled the floor and decorated the space in New England style, and the crisp linen with green and uh, white stripes had an oasis-like effect in the otherwise almost uninhabitable space. Sitting on a short flight of steps leading to the alcove during our long talk that afternoon, I remember my physical discomfort, the bare concrete biting into my legs, particularly loud music outside and there were two gunshots nearby against the indefinitely unfinished rooms that offered little privacy and little protection from the world outside. The breezy seaside chic of the alcove was almost like a window to um, new possibilities, a preview of the safe, comfortable, aesthetically pleasing domesticity that Jeanette might one day have. Perhaps was the stubborn joie de vivre or the uh, hope in Jeanette herself that made me see the outcome in this future-oriented way. Jeanette's life had not been easy. When her children were in in their teens, she migrated to New York with plans to make something of herself, like she says, earn money, and then sent for the children once she had uh, got herself established a trajectory familiar to thousands of caribbean migrants but the years in brooklyn proved to be hard and uh, jeanette was not able to obtain resident status or the kind of income she would have needed for family reunification instead she returned from new york to the beatum in her late 40s an engaging, powerful-looking woman with short, relaxed hair, deep alto voice. Um, Jeanette was not thinking of her life as a series of thwarted dreams or failures. She always saw it as a series of new beginnings. Her optimism her drive for something new and something different was not limited to herself and her children. She worked consistently in the community, organizing sports days and Father's Day banquets, birthday parties, talent contests and other events, aimed at bringing the people together, bringing them joy. She might not have succeeded in making something of herself in Brooklyn, but as a community activist in the Beaton, she was doing exactly that. She was growing, finding new strengths in herself, developing new skills. This process of becoming was outward-oriented in that Jeanette was making something of herself in order to build her community and support others. It's the love, the passion, and to see other people happy, that makes me happy, she would say. This is not a jokey thing for me. I want to better my life because my life is not over yet. Love for Jeanette here meant neighborly love or caritas. It was about respect, recognizing others, making them feel like somebody. The Trinidadian saying, I is people too, means that as a human being, one should be treated with respect. And much of Jeanette's work was about making others feel that they too were people. This love responded to the countless offenses that Jeanette and her neighbors and generations of poor Trinidadians before them had suffered. The daily denials of dignity caused by structural violence and the casual everyday acts of disrespect they all endured. Organizing a surprise party for Wayne, another community activist who is standing there in front of his preschool, um, was a memory that Janet cherished. She had mobilized the neighborhood, walking from house to house, uh, asking for donations for the party and uh, making everyone promise to keep it a secret. The party and the joy Jeanette saw in Wayne's surprise continued to bring her joy and satisfaction. She was proud about her ability to make something out of nothing, to uh, turn the community's meager resources into a banquet, and she felt happy about making her friend happy, but she was also pleased With the community's potential to work together and publicly (coughs) recognize the value of community work including Wayne's work and her own. Friends and particularly family were an invaluable source of support for Jeanette. The people who came up (coughs) the people who came up most often in our conversations were her daughter and her two sisters Evelyn and Gillian who also lived in the community. They grounded her in reciprocal exchanges of uh, care work and financial assistance, emotional and moral support. When Jeanette launched a discussion group for women, Evelyn and Gillian, the sisters, took part, creating an intergenerational dynamic in the group. Most of the participants were young women in their twenties or late teens. And these three older sisters, Jeanette and her sisters, um, brought to the meetings a level of authority and seriousness that aligned with the participants' understandings of how these groups are supposed to work. They kept in frequent contact. Evelyn worried about Jeanette, who threw herself into community work with little consideration of her n- for her own needs. You don't sleep at night? You're always onto something, she would fret. Jeanette, on the other hand, supported less outspoken Evelyn for example, when the police, armed and with dogs, barged into her house with, um, without a warrant. They shared memories, and their concerns, their dreams and hopes solidified their sisterhood, but they also guided their politics. Yvette, we're standing there, it's a bit dark, she's in her mid-fifties, like Jeanette, and moved to the and from Tobago in 1998. But unlike Jeanette, she had no sisters to rely on. And sociality in her case was what writers like Henrietta Moore call extended sociality, in that it included non-human entities. Having brought up her three children in the neighborhood, Yvette lived in Hellyard with her partner and her adult daughter, son and two grandchildren. In spite of putting down roots in the beaten, she often spoke of her sense of not belonging or exclusion, and he suspected that because she was from Tobago, she was not given better jobs or uh, projects. Of late, this feeling of not belonging had become intensified as Yvette had decided to leave her partner of almost 20 years. She found herself trapped and frustrated. She was trying to build a house for herself, and her kids, but the project was stagnant. She had cleared a piece of land between a nearby um, the highway on this side of the fence. And um, this is sort of a, on the southern fringe of the and where squatters still have space to clear land. Um, but she still needed sand and gravel and all kinds of things and had no money to purchase any. The land was long since reclaimed by weeds and razor grass and uh, Yvette's depression over this was palpable. The piles of blocks overtaken by vegetation were a cruel reminder of her thwarted attempt to settle in the Beaten on her own terms. But regardless of the structural violence and uh, actual physical violence that kept her and her children in poverty trap and threatened their lives, her social life was meaningful. Her mother, who lived in New York, would send her remittances every now and then. And she visited her people in Tobago, and her children and her grandchildren were the center of her life. And there was more. She had grown up in a Protestant Christian household in Plymouth, in Tobago, but in the Beatum, her world expanded. She got a calling, like she says. Some of her neighbors worshiped at Orisha shrines nearby, and these widely-traveled deities um, of the Yoruba-inspired religion beckoned her in her dreams. Yvette started going to a well-established shrine in Trumaka, which is um, up on the hill in Laventille. This is not a picture of that shrine, but um, a resembling space. And she was eventually initiated to the faith. As part of the initiation cycle, She spent several days in isolation um, and sensory deprivation and fasting at the shrine. And um, she was traveling in a spiritual world of visions and dreams. The purpose of such journeys in the spiritual Baptist and Orisha religions um, is to accumulate knowledge of oneself and of the world. And this knowledge and wisdom and understanding is uh, often presented as gifts from the spirits. So Yvette says, they give me a swimming pool with fishies. The fish were children, she explained, and she, Yvette, was supposed to take care of them. Very soon after completing the ritual, Yvette got a job at the local preschool. I end up in this school, I'm still here, because I just love seeing about children. Yeah, that's my calling, seeing about children. She nodded firmly, confident in the authority of her gift. To support her in her private life and her community work, Yvette communicated regularly with her spirits, or the water saints, like she called them. They appeared to her in dreams and visions, uh, and Yemanja manifested through her swimming and paddling uh, in the shrine and other, other rituals, ritual spaces. The relations were stayed through regular rituals of sacrifice. Yvette's transformation from an outsider to a community activist was fostered by her coexistence with (coughs) Yamanja. In contrast to her sense of isolation in her neighbourhood, Yvette's relations to Orishas and her children, who were also members of the Orisha shrine or community, and other people at the shrine, formed an effectively rewarding extended sociality that gave (coughs) her a sense of self and belonging. Yemanja was an unwavering source of support in her community work, and in her daily life. As Yemanja's daughter, Yvette took care of people, extending her reproductive labor from her own family uh, to the preschool where she worked, but also to the local primary school, where she ran an after-school um, after homework program. And she was also a community action officer, which is an official role in the citizen security program, and she was a trained counsellor and tireless in her drive to nurture the community. Apart from her coexistence with Yemanja, which has been going on for close to 20 years now, Yvette related to other lesser spirits. Beams, or the spirits of the dead summoned in Kabbalah rituals in, in Trinidad, were greedy, Yvette explained. They could help you get retribution and justice, but they required a price for their services, and that price was too high, Jeanette says. Yvette says. Beams, she chose her words carefully, asked for a life as payment for their help. The transactional value of human life was a regular feature in the moral economy of the beaten, where gang-related murders and police violence frequently turned people into pawns But Yvette said, I would only go to them, the Beams, if someone raped my girl children or kill my son. Even so, I would not offer them anything. I would let them do it if they want to, meaning avenge the perpetrator. So Beams, rather than justice system, could help in these instances of extreme violence and loss. But Yvette found the transactional logic of sacrifice immoral somewhat less dangerous, but equally greedy in Yvette's books, was her daughter's former employer who had a franchise, a sportswear franchise in Trinidad. Yvette said that uh, he had a buck in his basement. Bucks are these sort of um, anonymous, small, but kind of anthropomorphic spirits. Guyana and Trinidad, you would hear about them. Um, so this. Uh, manager of the sportswear franchise, kept the buck locked in his basement, behind a black door. Bucks need to be fed regularly and they reciprocate by making their masters rich. But uh, no matter what the cost of such such accumulation, but they can become dangerous and turn on you if neglected. So you need to keep on feeding the buck constantly. And this master servant relationship and the captivity of the buck and the exploitative accumulation of wealth resonates obviously with slavery, but perhaps also with contemporary relationships between patrons and clients in Trinidadian politics. So rather than the Orishas that Yvette lived with and worked with, these lesser entities, the beams and the bucks, served more as thinking tools for her. She she used them to consider questions of morality and justice, humanity, and so on. So Yvette and Jeanette's political subjectivity was formed within these sorts of relations, networks of relations, that informed their ideas about responsibility and morality and justice, but also their experiences of belonging and solidarity. Jeanette's friends and sisters and Yvette's spirits and children were constitutive parts of their development as political activists. So in other words, these relations were not just resources for motivation and support in these women's lives. They were political as part of these socialities. Their sense of self and their hopes for the future were inseparable from the people and spirits in their lives. So, in this last section of the paper, I'm going to talk about community building as a political act, again in relation to sociality and affect. Woman Talk was a weekly discussion group Janet organized for girls and women of Hellyard and environs. We don't have a voice, she would often say. The scope of we, varying from poor people in general, or the beaten community, or yard or Women in yard, And this group woman talk was uh, Jeanette's attempt to address this lack of opportunities for being heard. She explained that the purpose of the group was to help us have a voice, go forward and have better opportunities, even though everyone has struggled. There's a geography of fear and distrust produced by state violence, gang violence, which has drastically limited opportunities for gatherings like this in the Beaton. And perceptive community activists like Jeanette knew the importance of creating a safe space for the eventual possibility of community building and bringing about concrete change. In her classic Black Feminist Thought, Patricia Hill Collins writes about the political importance of safe spaces um, where black women could freely discuss public matters and private matters and foster the kind of self-inspection that their engagement in, in struggles for social justice might require. Such spaces for self-inspection and transformation were crucially important to political life in the beaten. Jeanette's work with Woman Talk aimed at community building in the long term instead of immediate projects and sort of tangible, immediate results. Uh, And this sort of conflicted with the rationals and funding criteria for the NGOs. In the safe space of woman talk, the participants had an opportunity to think about themselves and think about their futures. Um, And Janet's effort to provide this opportunity was in itself a political act. But the matters that surfaced in the conversations went far beyond the members' self-inspection and empowerment. They talked about issues such as domestic violence or police brutality. I want to train to be a lawyer, disclosed a woman woman in her early thirties at one of the meetings. Are oh, you in the beat I'm getting too much advantage from the police, she said, meaning that the police are treating the young men unfairly. Many of the women, including Jeanette, had sons and nephews, partners who had been beaten up or violently arrested by the police. And a space to discuss police violence and possible ways to counter it were of deep significance to them. A much younger woman, Keisha, who managed, she's here in the kind of white and black top. Uh, Keisha managed a small shop in Hellyard she was also a community builder. Whereas Jeanette's work was fostered by her um, love for her sisters and friends, romantic love, and love her, her children shaped Keisha's activism. I met Keisha in this informal group called Parent Outreach Program, <coughs> eight for young mothers. At 27, she had two children with her partner, Peter, and she was engaged to be married. In the midst of the carnival season, we were sitting in the back of the preschool with plans of making pinwheel sandwiches. We were chatting about pre-carnival shows, and Keisha, Renisha and Toya had brought white bread, food colouring, cheese, and Alana had sent us seasonings, scythe, celery, benny. Keisha was typically bubbly and sunny, showing us photos of uh, wedding rings that she had tried on. The phone screen did not do justice to the diamond in her favorite ring, so the others were hooting as she demonstrated the size of the stone with her thumb and her index finger. Peter wants an ugly moss green as a theme color, she complained. And since Peter had found Keisha's choice of pink and yellow equally unsuitable, they had compromised on blue and white. We talked about her dress and the diet it required, uh, the catering for the reception. When Keisha spoke of herself, her daily life and her plans for her future, she very often referenced Peter or their relationship. Peter was older than Keisha, in his 40s already, and um, his uh, maturity further enhanced by his stable, if modest, career in construction and his custody of two kids from a previous union. When Keisha told us about him, her tone was affectionate. And she spoke with a sense of pride. She might describe Peter's skills as a carpenter who could install kitchen cupboards or tile floors or tell us how much he liked the puffs that she had baked. Keisha knew that the wedding would be a major investment. She prepared (coughs) prepared for it with patience and care, the same way she ran her business, saved for a car and built her house. She knew what Jennifer, who was facilitating this group, meant when she said, some people have a morbid pocket but a champagne mind. So this sort of model that performance of success by conspicuous consumption, even if one could not make ends meet, was an accusation often heard in popular analyses of poverty. But Keisha and Peter's two-story house, built on stilts like many other structures in Hellyard, would be furnished and decorated in stages. You get a stove this year, she would say, and then something else next year. Her shop occupied a small room on the ground floor of their new house, and she managed it skillfully. Neatly priced and packed on the shelves, one could find anything from stockings, uh, sardines, exercise books, toys, pasta, pregnancy, tests, to scrap gold and bathroom detergents. From a little back room, she sold shots of rum in plastic cups to customers who fancied a drink. Kisho actively thinking of ways of developing her business and expanding it. She's weighing the cost-effectiveness of different recipes. and uh, Every now and then, she set up a barbecue on Saturday mornings, advertising it on Facebook, taking pre-orders. And she saved money in two Suzu groups in this traditional uh, communal saving system. A group of people pay a flat sum periodically, like once a week. And um, the organizer of the susu ring at intervals then lets one member of the, of the, of the susu ring to draw the hand, which means the sum total of the contributions. So Kisho was smart, she was forward-thinking. Plans were ambitious, but her pace was realistic her calculations careful. It seemed to me that she took delight in her growth, the growth of her resourcefulness over the years, finding new strengths in herself and um, venturing to think of new prospects. (coughs) When she joined this parent outreach program, she was reserved like everybody else in the group. She always came across as very articulate and funny, but at first her jokes were harmless and impersonal. But over time, she became instrumental in the slow development of friendship and trust among these women. Her stories turned riskier and more personal, her jokes more explosive. Adding complexity to her self-portrayal as a mother and a businesswoman, she started showing us her sexy, fun-loving side. She would wear tight tops and jeans, told us about her teenage escapades. She would show us photos of herself posing in a red mini-dress on her way to a party. And in our group photos, she would strike the most ridiculously seductive poses. So she was fun to be around. Just uh, Her good-natured presence, her comedic gifts, and her refusal to confine herself to the narrow um, norms of respectability made space for all of us in the group to sort of let go of our masks. She encouraged openness and responsiveness in others. The young mothers eventually started exchanging names and numbers and uh, these sort of, these even tentative connections were not to be taken for granted in the Beaten, where the atmosphere of distrust and fear was so strong. Keisha also supported the group by drawing from her entrepreneurship and financial savvy. So she would provide ingredients for new recipes. She would uh, make suggestions for a curriculum of the program. She would lend us uh, bowls and chopping boards and make suggestions. She started a WhatsApp group and when she finally got her car, she would drive people around the area or go to the um, wholesale markets to get her stuff. So she used her self-presentation to create a safe space for herself and the other women to talk about their lives and their pasts and eventually about their hopes and ideas for the future. People like Keisha and Jeanette worked towards bringing people together by creating these sorts of safe spaces for discussion with the long-term objective of community building. Unlike the fluid and heterogeneous socialities that fostered activists' work, the community that they sought to eventually build was a temporally and spatially located collective, a recognizable group of people like women in the beatum or people in Hellyard. So much of the political work that I encountered in the beta was at this stage of becoming, sort of potential formation into something more more stable, not yet in the shape of a sustainable movement or association. In another chapter of my book I'm talking about the efforts of the government and the international NGO regime to harness these sorts of attempts. to com- of community building. And I'm, I'm thinking about how the NGO template that is expected to empower people like Jeanette or Yvette or Keisha works to um, actually empower them or otherwise. I'm not sure whether there is going to be space for <coughs> informal groups like Woman Talk to develop into political collectives outside of the NGO model. <coughs> and therefore maybe have more radical political potential. That remains to be seen. But this ethnography has been more concerned with the social lives of the people who are becoming political, (coughs) rather than the uh, possible future outcomes of their activism. So to briefly conclude, people in the Beaton acted and thought politically within various socialities. Relational processes that influ- included differently positioned people and spirits. Um, people were certainly active in non-governmental organizations, but it was these less obviously political relations that located their politics beyond the contours of Hell Yard, to Tobago and New York and the <coughs> the spiritual world. They also engender the affect and the self-inspection and the inspiration and temporal orientation required by political work. The political objectives that arose uh, out of such socialities, like giving respect or creating safe spaces, had long-term implications for community building. Their work, Keisha's work, Yvette's work, Jeanette's work, and the self-inspection and self-constitution it required was often motivated by love. Neighborly love, romantic, intimate love, love for one's siblings and children, deferential love for an orisha. In Jeanette's words, the love we have for one another, they can't take that from we, they can't take that from we. Thank you.